0: everyone. Thanks for dialing in. Welcome to the Alternative Conversations series with Westbrook. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dino Zucola. I'm the head of distribution and product development at the group. And today we're talking real estate and specifically what real estate investing looks like after the pandemic. I'm very privileged to be joined by Evan Jankolovitz. Evan is a founding director at Sesvikile Capital. Ev, thanks so much for making the time. Pleasure. I I think maybe before we start, for those clients of ours who aren't familiar with Cesfakile, can you maybe just position a little bit around your business, what it is that you guys do, um, and where you operate? Okay,
1: so we operate specifically in listed property, globally and locally. We set up just under 11 years ago. uh, There were three founders, myself, uh, Evan Jankalovitz, who was formerly at Stanlib. I used to run the property division there and used to run a local and a global developed market fund there also who were part of the founding team is kundai munzara who was the head of research at investic property and he was you know pr- prior to joining sesfakile or starting up sesfakile was working out of the uk setting up the offshore funds and we also had a in the third person in in the grouping As the founders was Mohammed Kalla, who was a uh, number one rated sell side analyst at that time with BJM and looking purely at property. So the three of us got together and decided to focus purely on property. That is our strength. That is our skill set. And we set up a a niche business. I I don't like to, you know, really say boutique because we we don't want to see ourselves as it's got a bit of a stigma as as just small for the sake of it. But we set up a property exclusive uh, fund. And we look only two products at the moment: local and offshore.
0: I got you. I got you. So local and offshore listed property. I mean, and it's been a yes. it's been an interesting journey, Evan. I mean, if I think back, maybe talking South Africa first. A couple of years, you know, listed property was the darling of the market. I recall times where. You know, they were inwardly listed REITs trading at multiples of NAV and, you know, the capital raising cycle was strong. Corporate finance houses around South Africa were having a whale of a time listing money uh, or raising money for the listed property funds. Things started to change. And, and, and interestingly, that change, I think, started before COVID. Um, things now, I suppose, are tough. But before we get to COVID, what was it that, in your mind, Evan, that that served as the catalyst for for the changing of this perception around property in South Africa?
1: It's, it's not the catalyst, you must look at the history. So yes, property was a darling of the sector. So if you look at, call it circa 18 years ago, the property market was unloved, it was unknown because I remember speaking to some generalists when I was a, an analyst at Stanlib saying, why do I have to look at the subsector, which is a whole sector of, call it 15 stocks at the time, where I can look at pick and pay, which was the market cap was bigger than the entire subsector?" So as it grew, you saw a marginal demand coming through. You also saw the compression in interest rates, which pushed valuations. And also you saw, remember, you know, property was trading at a huge discount, both on NAV and, and also much higher uh, yields than the bonds. You also saw that normalize. So you saw a normalization. The initial years, you saw property normalize. So that huge run where you saw circa 25, 30% a year, in and out for quarter, four or five years, that was that was uh, merited, most definitely. However, subsequent to that, unfortunately, you know, it was loved too much, and and the the love was you know on the other side had to be given back, and the the companies thought they had to deliver on that those uh, growth numbers, the distribution growth of call it circa 10 percent, and that is not possible. It's possible in a, in an economy that is growing. It's you know three four percent GDP. But it's not possible into perpetuity, especially as GDP falls you know, you know, falls down to kind of flat lines at zero. So what we saw is coming, coming through Nanogate, and even slightly before Nanogate, there was no, you know, no way that these companies could, could deliver on 8%, 8.5% distribution yields. But they were doing that. And how were they doing it? They were converting capital to income. And that is most definitely not sustainable. And that created a hole. And that hole effectively came to the fore really at the beginning of 2018, where some of the hedge funds targeted uh, the resilient grouping. And some of the allocations I don't think were were fair or correct, but some were. And some some of them that were correct was there was a lot of financial engineering. And to be honest, you know, they they could have continued with it because the market was willing to give them money. You know, at very high multiples, and they could reinvest it very well. And you know, any any allegations of criminality, I think, were they were not called for. I don't I don't believe in that. I think, to be very honest and give them credit, the one thing that did very well is that their transparency was always there. They disclosed everything. Unfortunately, a lot of the the buyer side decided not to read. Yes, they were aggressive, but why not be when the the market was feeding you? And they just carried on. They're also very good operators. So they never just took the money and you know did foolish things with it. They they kind of put it into assets and they delivered. All one of the best managers of you know big retail in the country. So,
0: so Evan, just a quick one. You you referred earlier to converting capital to income. For those who aren't perhaps as close to the reit sector, I mean, what what does that mean?
1: <laughs> you know, is that the the reits what your distribution is meant to be is really meant to be your, your income that you distribute on an ongoing basis. And if you see growth in that, it's really a, a see-through growth in rentals and a little bit of gearing on that. However, what happens is there are many tricks to do it. But for example, where you go offshore and obviously 2016 is a, a huge catalyst when a lot of uh, individuals and companies saw what happened through Nanogate and they, took, they kind of took money offshore. And what happened is it was a lot easier to invest offshore at a carry, meaning that if you wanted to buy an asset in South Africa, your funding costs, you know, were a lot higher than the, the than the cost of the actual asset. You know, if you had interest or funding debt, funding costs of circa nine ten percent. Whereas if you went to, for example, to to Europe, you could fund through debt at two three percent and buy an asset at four five percent, which is great. But the truth of the matter is, the growth is no longer there. But they use that initial carry at the expense of future growth in order to prop up or push earnings. So in the in the initial stages, so that was one of the the tricks. But there were many more. Mm. But you know, turning capital capital should not be distributed. Capital should be reinvested into or is really your your, your asset, your your bri- bricks and mortar, where it should be reinvested to grow the underlying NAV of the company.
0: I suppose. I mean, the problem as you mentioned with that trick is if you buy an asset with a positive spread next year it gets included in the base and then you've got to do it again if you don't have growth right
1: exactly and you know when guys were able to as you say when you know some of the stocks were trading at multiples of nav you know when you raise money at those multiples and you can pretty much reinvest it anywhere and get a carry in your earnings and well in your noi And that's great, but it doesn't last into perpetuity. It's a once-off, and it actually makes it harder to recreate going forward.
0: So, so Evan, I suppose the question for me that begs is, you know, is this fixation that we have in the REIT sector around assessing the quality and success of a REIT based on its ability to grow dividends per share, is that the right way to look at it? Because, like you mentioned, it creates these perverse incentives and almost these behaviors that aren't right. I mean, at some point, and maybe this is – what added to you know the REIT sector not being as hot at the moment, at some point, does one not need to admit that South Africa is a market where perhaps we're X growth or we're not growing at the levels that the market expects? Um, and as a consequence, DPS growth might not be there.
1: I agree completely. And I think that when you say is the market so kind of hooked up on, on distribution growth, well, it was. I think the market has changed quite a bit in the last few years. I think if you look at a a lot of the analysts, they'll look at a total return outlook as opposed to just distribution and distribution growth. And as you've seen, a lot of these companies, they've done it for good reasons because, you know, they've got to firm up their balance sheets. But I don't think you're going to see the 100% payout going forward. Our REIT regime, unfortunately, you know, obliged the, especially the tax consequences, you know, these companies to payout all of their distribution, you know, all of their earnings as distribution. And that's unfortunately didn't allow them to reinvest in the assets, for example, in maintenance costs. And then you always had to effectively turn that capital into income because some of that money should have been reinvested. So that was a conversion rate of capital into income as well. So there there are a lot of factors there. But again, that catalyst came through at the beginning of 2018 and uh, for better or worse, resilient was the target. But again, I don't, I don't think anything was underhanded there at all. I just think that they were slightly, well, they were aggressive in some of their structures, but they were aggressive because it was working and the market was feeding them as, as and when they raised capital. So, no, you've got to say, who do you point the finger at? The, the buy side, the sell side, or the company itself?
0: So that was 2018. Let's fast forward now to today, where obviously we've gone through COVID. We've also just had a couple of weeks of unfortunate circumstances here in South Africa with looting and so on. Um, where do we find ourselves now? Obviously, it's been tough.
1: It's been very tough. And, you know, when we came through, let's call it this time last year, I was actually a little optimistic because you saw the valuations you know, really fall off a cliff. But you really started to see some transparency as to what COVID was bringing. So the lockdowns weren't as you know, potentially protracted as we thought they would be. And we thought that the market completely overreacted. So this time last year, I said, you know, guys, things are bad on the ground, but there's a, a fortune of value. Subsequent to that, you know, call it sixty percent or so later, where the market has rallied quite aggressively, we've we've still got issues. The COVID isn't our primary issue. I, I really don't believe that. I think our primary issue now is the stability of SA and SA Inc as a whole, and you know, how do we get GDP on a a positive trajectory? But, uh, you know, unfortunately, the market isn't offering as much you know, upside. I think it's sitting at the moment as a you know, fair value. You know, I would have said at the beginning of the month, slightly overvalued. But in the last few days, we've seen all the last week, you know, you've seen prices pull back up to 10%. So I think it's sitting probably fair value, slight uh, upside in the, in the market. But um, unfortunately, we, same as we were in, call it, March of 2020, we don't have enough clarity as to how this civil unrest will unwind. Mm. So, so that is my conclusion.
0: Evan, I mean, you made a comment there that I find interesting. You, you, you think the market is probably fair value at the moment. Now, yes. if you look at the at the discount to NAV metric of a lot of these listed property companies, they're trading. I think it's fair to say at a pretty big discount to their NAVs. So, if if you believe that this is fair value, does that mean that the NAVs are wrong?
1: you know it's nav is, is a point in time they are they're always a moving target so you know call it well, six months or so ago you're probably looking at a discount to nav across the sector at around about 45 percent. now we're sitting at around about 25 percent, maybe you know slightly tighter there are some outliers there but there's a mix so firstly we we do think that the navs will you know pull back slightly not as much as they have in the last six months or last 12 months but there's you know as i said it's a it's focusing on where we think uh, navs will settle and if you look at the gearing in the in the sector no, it's called it circa 38 percent no there is a a geared move in that in that pullback of nav of the company so yes we do think that uh, navs will pull back a little bit and we don't expect them to pull back to nav because there's always an element of risk and an element of uncertainty where these assets trade. So therefore, the potential prospective buyer would always want a buffer of you know comfort. So, so I do think that you know, valuations will come off, but not you know five to ten percent max. You,
0: you refer to it being you know the NVEs having been the, the having been as high as 45 percent, they come back to 25. I, I assume that's referring to the SA market. Um, just out of interest, yeah. Evan, how does that compare to what we're seeing offshore?
1: Well, you know, in our, so when you speak offshore, do you mean the offshore opportunities we have within the OP in South Africa, or are we talking about just complete domestic market? Uh, complete foreign, foreign markets, markets so. I
0: suppose. You know, your second fund, you speak about yeah, yeah. your offshore fund. It's a, it's
1: a, it's a great question, it's, that it, it's so sector specific. So retail are still trading at material discounts to NAV, you know, anywhere close to 30% or so. But then you've got you know certain assets that are trading at, at premiums to NAV, you know, storage or the likes. You know, certain stocks are, are you know, potentially expensive, but they you know they, they offer a lot more growth. Therefore, the the market is willing to pay that uh, that premium for them because they can still see a lot more upside. And with an upside in NOI, you still you see a, a push in their NAV number as well. So there is still a lot of up and a lot of stocks there that are actually trading at a premium to NAV. Now, certain uh, industrial stocks around the world. I'll give you a, a, an example: uh, a, a European warehouse or logistics facility. It's called Warehouse Depot. Is trading at two times NAV. So that's pretty much where where NEPI was trading it in its heyday. Funny enough, NEPI in the last week, besides this recent pull-off, was actually trading back at NAV, which is very, very interesting. And at one stage, it was trading at about a 20%, 20, 20, 25% discount to NAV. So, you know, it depends on, you know, globally, it depends which sector you're in. So, you know, you're looking at multifamily, you're looking at office, those are all the discounts to NAV because they are weaker sectors at the moment in hotels and the likes. But if you look at some of the stronger, you know, Higher, or call it the growth assets, they are trading at premiums
0: to NAV. So if you took South African commercial retail, let's say, that is, we would say, sort of in line with where, where things are globally or, or at bigger discounts?
1: It's stock by stock. It's probably retail probably at a slightly bigger discount whereas office at the moment, so we don't have pure office. That's uh, unfortunate to see through. But it'd probably be a, probably a slightly bigger discount uh, to its compar- uh, comparatives globally at the moment.
0: So, I mean, and, and the reason I asked the question, Evan, is, you know, one one's trying to work out where the opportunities lie, right? And the and the question, I suppose, that has begged many property investors, investors in South Africa has been, well, geez, if these REITs are trading at such big discounts to NAV in the listed environment, and perhaps the discount isn't entirely justified. Is there not some form of an argument to take these things private?
1: Well, that's a separate argument to, you know, by itself in South Africa as opposed to comparing it to offshore. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Is at uh, NEPI. Everyone used to say if you want to compare it to Unibar, and this is before retail's big fallout globally, no, it's very expensive. And I always said no. Why is that? It's because look at the discount to NAV or the premium to NAV. I said look at the NAV is that if you want to value these assets in, call it, um, in, in Western Europe, you are valuing these assets at, call it, 3.5% at the peaks, or 3%, you know, as a cap rate, whereas in NEPI, in they were at 7%. And they were generating as much revenue. They were probably better operationally than their compatriots uh, in the Western European assets. So you've got to look at both sides of that. So if you want to ask that question, you've got to look at a standalone. In South Africa is their ability to take these things private and potentially liquidate them, hold them and operate them into a stronger market? Yes, definitely. There was a huge opportunity nine months ago. Unfortunately, when you're caught up in the negativity and speaking maybe from a private equity stance, I think guys were very slow to actually press the button. So they had huge opportunities. They were lining themselves up, but they waited too long. If we see where we are now, again, we, we at that stage of pessimism in in the last week or so. Have the prices adjusted to the same degree? No. I think a lot of these guys saw that there was definitely a flaw, no matter I wouldn't say no matter how bad the things are on the ground, but there was a an element to a flaw in these prices. So we, we seeing a little bit of a you know a flaw here The guys are buying at these lower levels. But yes there there are examples where you're seeing opportunities where you can take these assets and you can either split them up or you can operate them into a you know, a tool to minimize that discount to NAV. And a good example now is the, the potential merger between Fairvest and Arrowhead. Now, Fairvest are buying Arrowhead because they see that huge discount to NAV and their ability to sell out some of the key assets there and in, in, in a significant, I want say premium, call it at NAV, and you're buying it at a 30 40% discount to NAV. So there, there is the ability to to do this. you have just got to be able or, or brave enough to actually press that button. Yeah. I
0: suppose. Look, the, the other the other big assumption is that just because a stock is trading at a discount to its NAV doesn't mean that the owners of that stock are sellers at that level, right?
1: No, yeah, well, exactly. It's hundred percent. And I, and I don't think that uh, Arrowhead are, are happy or willing sellers, to be very blunt. But I think they're caught in a position where they they pretty much have to, you know succumb to to
0: fairness it does beg the question Evan, around property and you know as as you know we play in the world of alternative property doing more direct property you more in the listed space it, it begs the question as to which is more preferable around around the, the type of ownership whether one should do it in a listed environment and or, or unlisted i suppose it's maybe an unfair comparison to make because in the one you've got a five-year hold in an illiquid asset and in the other you've got a daily traded and priced stock. But it is an interesting debate.
1: It's it's a great debate and I'm obviously uh, I'm a listed property manager so I'm going to take the one side. But uh, the, the truth of the matter is uh, I think that listed is preferable for maybe the man in the street that wants you know, entrance into this, uh, this sector who can't do the gearing on his own on his own behalf who wants to minimize the costs and have that expert management on the ground? i believe in physical property but i believe in physical property where you've got a strong management platform and that is so key you mustn't just be buying a single asset because it's sold to you but you must buy it because you can see the unwind the potential there and you must really as much as you buy the asset you got to buy the management team and the ability to unwind the value. 100%.
0: Evan, I, I have a thousand other things I could ask you, but time is not on our side. Maybe one last question in closing is, you know, where do you see the opportunities going forward? We're, I mean, we're in an unprecedented time as a world. <laughs> Maybe you want to split it up between local and offshore. But I'm fascinated to get your views on, on where we're going.
1: Okay. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit more exciting offshore because there's so many different sectors. So, you know, what our preference offshore is single-family residential. We like manufactured homes. Residential is, is, what we said, it's one of those sectors that is not you're not able to outsource it through the tech revolution. So, you know, re- you speak about retail, you can go Amazon. You speak about, you know, hospitality, you can go Airbnb. You speak about office, people say work from home. But you can't, you know, go online as a living. So we do like, like single-family homes. We don't like multifamily. There's a reason for that. But just really the single-family and manufactured homes is really on top of our agenda at the moment. And also industrial and logistics is still very, very strong. The prices have moved aggressively, but their, their pricing power and their ability to push rentals and in this market that is you know, pushed into online trading globally, that's what we like on a, on a global front. So, you know, for example, our top holding at the moment is Torino, which is kind of coastal infill logistics, you know, last mile logistics. And we, we like that at the moment as being our top, uh, top holding. And, uh, and, and also up there we have, you know, uh, SUI, which is a, sun, a, sun inter, uh, international, is a really uh, manufactured homes. We have the likes of, uh, of single family up there. Locally, it's more of an valuation. Locally, we 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 like it at, at the moment. If you had to look at our top uh, holdings, we like Dupula A. It's given you about a 13% forward yield, and you know it's a preferential unit. It's very difficult to get excited about the sub asset classes. So we do like equities, and we you know being logistics locally and in the UK, we do like the the likes of Investec Australia, being Australian uh, commercial and industrial. But uh you know, you, you really you're really gonna play valuation more so than globally where you can play more thematics and then and you can play the, the actual valuations within those thematics.
0: Well I'm glad to hear that some of your key trends even overlap with uh, the stuff that we're doing here as Westbrook, i opposed <laughs> with our Westbrook Argo last mile strategy in the UK. Looking at the last mile logistics sector and our partnership with Tovia in U.S. mobile home parks, as we call them, or manufactured housing—a fascinating asset class that something that South Africans don't really know very well. No, and,
1: and that's, that's beautiful beauty about lo, uh, global because yeah, you know, here we have industrial, and you just have all logistics. You just have these big boxes. There you have the big boxes, you have the infills, you have cold storage. Now, when we speak residential, here we might have a little bit of an indirect exposure through Sun. Uh, through SA corporate or through you know through um Optidex whereas globally you have multi-family like Equity Residential and Avalon Bay, you have single family and our best picks are invitation homes there. You, you you have a lot of opportunities, you have a lot of like manufactured homes this could also fall into residential and we hold that through some communities. So you know you have much more choice globally. But there is times or are times where this local market gets ultra pessimistic that the valuations are, are much better than the offshore comparative.
0: Evan, it's been absolutely brilliant chatting to you. I've really enjoyed your insights, and it's nice to get the, the local and offshore flavor in a single conversation. Um, that's Evan Jankolovitz. He's a founding director at Sesfakile Capital today talking on our alternative conversation series around the local and offshore property markets. Evan, I really appreciate the time.
1: Thank you very much, Jess.